Have you, and I don't want you to raise your hands, I should say this first, don't raise your hand, have, but here's a question to think about. Have you ever driven while intoxicated? Again, I'm not wanting you to, to because either you're going to be like, oh man, I got to tell myself, or maybe you're like, yeah, and I don't do, don't do that either, okay? So have you ever driven while intoxicated or been in the car with someone who was driving intoxicated? Maybe you were too. Or perhaps you weren't and you were like freaked out because they were. Or have you ever been hit? Hit by someone who was driving while intoxicated. We call it DUI, right? DUI is driving under the influence. Has that ever happened to you? Now, obviously this has never been, it's always been frowned upon and they are kind of cracking down on it more. You'll see billboards now and even commercials. Does anyone watch commercials anymore? I don't know what that is. But commercials and billboards saying, um, you know, watch out They'll, if they bust you for driving under the influence. It's a big deal, right? Because it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's never a good idea. Accidents, accidents happen when the driver is operating while impaired, right? Damage is caused and lives are harmed and sometimes lives are lost when someone drives while impaired, impaired by alcohol, impaired by drugs or other substances and damage is caused. And so it's important for us to recognize when we have no business being behind the wheel, right? I have no business being behind the wheel right now. Now, we are finishing our sermon series called Rules for the Road. And if you've been with us for the last many weeks, we have talked about um, a lot of different rules. And we've given you every week in the back uh, a, a verse for the week to memorize or to keep with you and a rule for the road for that week. And last week, we actually passed out a, a kind of a cover card for them all with this graphic on the screen on that card and a verse that we've not really talked about this whole series on that card as well. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some of my life verses right there. I love those verses. They're on the back of that card. And we've given you an, an individual card for each of these six weeks with a rule. <clears throat> and today, there's another one back there for you. <clears throat> Excuse me, if you haven't gotten one yet. Now, today, here's what we're going to do. For the next rest of our time together, uh, we are going to look at a Bible story for most of our time. Afterwards, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of statements that I think are very good advice today. And I don't have them all on a card in the back. Just one rule on the card in the back, right? So today, we'll put a lot of statements on the screen later on that I hope that you'll write them down because it's, it's just good input or maybe take a picture of the screen when they're there because we're going to give you a lot to chew on at the very end pretty quickly. But most of the time I'm going to tell you a Bible story and let me start there today as we get going. The story is about ancient Israel. And um, to back up before we introduce our key characters, it was a time when Israel was a, na a young nation. They had come out of slavery. They, were, um, they came to this land that they occupied. They... Um, they had judges kind of ruling over them, and eventually they made their first king named Saul. When he died, uh, a young man who was a national military wartime hero named David was anointed king. Uh, he was from the tribe of Judah. Let me pause and explain tribes to you. So the nation of Israel was the descendants of a man whose name was Jacob, 
but his name was changed to Israel. So Israel is Jacob. Jacob is Israel. His descendants became the nation of Israel. Um, he had 12 sons, and each son was known as a, one of the tribes of Israel. Their descendants made up the tribes of Israel. And so uh, David was a descendant of the tribe of Judah in the nation of Israel. It was on the southern end of the country, and it was the biggest and most powerful tribe. It's kind of like picture states in our country or something like provinces, okay? The biggest tribe in Israel was Judah, um, and it was, um, it, was, it was powerful. And uh, David came from that tribe, and he was a military hero. When King Saul died, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin made him their king. But the other tribes instead promoted one of Saul's sons to be king. And there was a kind of a divided kingdom for a while. And then eventually, about seven years of that, they realized that David was the rightful king. So seven years later, David became the full king of the whole nation of Israel. The country got reunited. And for, for 33 more years, he reigned, 40 years in total, over the whole nation. When David died, his son Solomon became king. Solomon was an incredibly wise king. He prayed and asked God for wisdom and was known for his wisdom. But when Solomon was king, what's interesting is that um, he had a vision to build a temple to worship God. And before that, they had a tent, a very fancy, elaborate, large tent called a tabernacle. And he wanted to build a permanent temple, a very fancy building, a house of worship for, God, for Yahweh, for God. And um, so he, what he did was he taxed the people. They raised taxes across the country. And not just taxes, but they also began to... Um, Draft like, we, like a military draft would be today. They drafted young people to serve a couple years at a time to come in and work overseas to bring supplies, to be in the ships, to be in the country, to be in the royal city of Jerusalem in Judah, in the southern end of the kingdom, to build the temple, to do the work. You were drafted by the kingdom to do the work. So you had the forced labor draft and you had the taxes. And Solomon did all of that and people kind of put up with it because they wanted the temple built. It took seven years to do that, but after seven years, Solomon wasn't done yet. He wanted to build a royal palace in Jerusalem, spent another 14 years of high taxes and forced labor and drafts to build the palace. And when that was done, he still didn't stop. He wanted to make the royal city to be more magnificent, and so he kept doing it. And so for his entire life, the taxes were high, the draft was in place, people were getting weary of it. At one point along the way, Solomon was, he kind of drifted from God. He married like a thousand women, which is insane. Just began to just have a bunch of wives and uh, they kind of lost his heart for God. And at some point, uh, God raised up a man that I want you to know about today whose name was Jeroboam. Jeroboam worked for Solomon in his administration. And Jeroboam was out doing his, you know, doing his job, was in a field one day. And a prophet a prophet came and approached him and said, Jeroboam, King Solomon is not healthy, he's not spiritually healthy, and he's also running the nation harsh, and he's going to lose it one day. After his lifetime, the nation's going to be divided again. And, and Jeroboam, the prophet said, you will be the king of the break-off group. You will be the, it will be the, you know, you're going to be the king. Ten of the tribes are going to go with you. And he said, Jeroboam, if you, I'm prophesying that this is going to happen. When it happens, if you will follow God like David followed God 
And Solomon used to follow God. If you'll follow God, God will bless you like he blessed David's throne and you'll have a, a, a heritage and a, for your generations to follow. Well, Jeroboam, the word got back somehow to King Solomon and Jeroboam actually ran for his life and went to Egypt, kind of in exile because Solomon considered him to be a threat now. Well, eventually Solomon got old and died and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was in line to be the king. Now, these guys, I know they both end with Boam. They're not related. These are not the Boam brothers, okay? This is just uh, the names. But Rehoboam um, was Solomon's son. And Solomon had a lot of kids, but this was the one who was set to take over the throne of Israel. In fact, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs in the Bible, you'll see that Solomon wrote a lot of the book of Proverbs, and a lot of it he wrote to his children, specifically to his son, preparing him for this day. My son, listen to my advice. When you read that, think of Rehoboam. And, and so Rehoboam is now going to be the king because dad has died. So I want you to keep these guys in mind for a little bit. But I also want you to be thinking of a third person, or should I say a group of people that are important in the story, and that is the people of Israel. Because oftentimes when we hear a story like I'm about to tell you, we think about the famous characters, but we forget about all the regular people. But the, but the, but the re people, the regular people, that's us, folks. It's kind of like in culture today. Everyone knows the celebrities and the rich people and the politicians. We all know, you know, we all know the rich people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. We know our politicians like our current president, Joe Biden, our former president, Donald Trump, or other pol political figures on both parties. We know uh, celebrities. We know who plays our favorite Marvel superhero or... Um, you know, whatever we like to watch. We know, but, but we always think about the famous people when things happen, but there's all the other people. And it's actually the people of Israel that are going to play into the lessons we're going to learn from our story today, even though the big names kind of take the headline. Okay? Anyhow, what happens is this. When Solomon died and Rehoboam was going to be anointed to be king of Israel, what happened was, he did not go to Jerusalem, which is the royal city in his, you know, his home tribe of Judah. He did not get, have his coronation there because it was too far for the nation to come celebrate. Because again, Judah was a southern tribe, a very large tribe in the south part of the country, kind of like a big state like Texas would be today you know, in our country. It's a big tribe. A lot of people, but way down in the south end of the kingdom. So, so Rehoboam went up to a city called Shechem, which was centrally located so that all the different tribes of Israel could come to that place and, and he could be in the central location in Shechem and be anointed to be the new king. Well, when he went there, everyone showed up by the, by the thousands and tens of thousands. I mean, people came from everywhere for the ceremony. Not just because this is only their third king, in their history, fourth king in their history. But because they had a special request. It was kind of one of those, yes, we're coming for the coronation, but we're also coming to have a million-person march here, you know, or something, I don't know. They're showing up because they wanted to talk to him. So they show up, and the day that Rehoboam is, is crowned as the new king in Shechem, the people had a request for him. We find it in 1 Kings 12 and verse 4. They said, your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten 
the harsh labor demands and the heavy taxes that your father imposed on us, then we will be your loyal subjects. They said, if you'll just do us this favor, we understood the temple, but that's been long built. He's got a palace now. He's got a fancy city. Everything's real cool. We're the envy of all the other countries, and we're being overtaxed and overworked. And he's gone. Please, Rehoboam, if you'll just come and lead better, lead differently, keep us in mind, lead with the people in mind. If you'll do that, we will be your loyal subjects. We will be in your corner no matter what. You'll be the most popular king ever. Your approval ratings will be off the charts if you'll just lighten the tax load and the workload that your dad has enforced all these decades. Can we, can we all understand that? Can we all relate to that, right? I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Well, Rehoboam has a decision to make, and he wasn't ready for it, I don't think, at all. So he does something incredibly wise at first. He says to the people, I need a few days to think about it. So if you all can just go back home or if you're too far away, stay put. But give me a few days and come back and we'll meet together here in Shechem. I'll stay here. I won't go back to the royal city. I'll stay here and we'll talk in a few days. But let me think about it and get some advice because that's a lot to take in on my first day. That's fair. So the people dispersed. And Rehoboam first goes to the older counselors who served his dad in his administration. He goes to the counselors who advised his dad, Solomon, and he tells them what the people wanted. And he says, guys, what do you think I should do? The older counselors said to Rehoboam, the people are right. I mean, it's been hardcore for a long time. And, and really, should have stopped a long time ago, but Whatever. But Rehoboam, if you'll adjust your policies, if you'll shift things right now, the people will be so grateful to you that they will follow you like they said they would and you'll be the best king ever. Listen to the people. You're a young king, listen to the people. Rehoboam thanked them, walked away and gathered his buddies, the guys who he grew up with, went to school with, the guys he knew well, and said, hey guys, so we all grew up together, we all, this, is, this is our moment, Right? What should I do? The people want me to do this. The older counselor said I should do this certain thing. What do you guys advise? And his buddies, his friends, they all said, no way. Don't listen to those older guys. Listen, you know what? They, they, they were under your dad's administration and they kept the taxes nice and high and now they want you to lower them? What, do as I say, not as I do? If they can do it, we can do it. Don't, they have no right to tell us that any better. And I got news for you. Uh, we know what we're doing. They want us to be weak. They want to weaken us. Your dad was a strong king and he got away because he was tough. You got to be tough. They're pushing you around already, man. You got to walk in and show them who's the boss. Tell them that your finger is thicker than your whole dad's loins. I mean, you're strong. You're going to be the man. You got to play a hard hand so that people know you're the king. That's the only way to lead forward from here. Listen to us, man. These old people, they just kind of forgot how it's supposed to go, but we know. Well, Rehoboam decided he'd follow their advice. So the people gathered back together in 1 Kings 12, 13. It says, but Rehoboam spoke harshly to the people. For he rejected the advice of the older counselors and followed the counsel of his younger advisors. He told the people, he said, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. 
My father beats you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. Wow. That is a speech. That is a, wow. Can we just appreciate for a moment how absolutely devastating that is to all the people? They have been feeling oppressed in their own country for all these years. They're hoping a regime change is going to bring a fresh start. They make an appeal. They have hope for a few days that he's listening and reasonable. And he comes out and says, it's going to get tougher. I'm the man. You will respect me. We're raising the bar. That's devastating to the nation. That's devastating to people who are just trying to make a go, but whose kids are getting taken into the into the draft, into the, into the labor, whose, uh, whose means are getting taxed to death. They're just beat down. This was a bad moment, and now their difficult circumstances are about to get even worse. So what did they do? In verse 16 it says, When the, all of Israel realized that the king had refused to listen to them, they responded, Down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, O David. So the people of Israel returned home. Now, you might understand a lot of that verse. Let me kind of give you, just put it on the bottom shelf. The, the, the dynasty of David refers to Rehoboam's grandfather, David, who was the second king, who was from the tribe of Judah on the southern part of the kingdom, who became the king after he was a war hero. David's dad was Jesse. Um, and, and, and the nation was saying, here all this time you've been taxing us to build up your tribe, the, the royal city's in Jerusalem. It's not here. It's not up here where we all, it's in your tribe. It's in your capital city. Jerusalem's the capital down south. And you've been taking our money, our taxes, our kids to build that city up all this time. And we're tired. And now you're telling us it's not going to stop? You can have your city. You can have your Jerusalem. You can have your tribe. Run your own empire. We're breaking off. We're seceding right now is what we're doing. We are seceding from the union. We're bailing. They said, you can take it and we're gone. And in that moment, 10 of the tribes of Israel cut off ties and walked away from Judah and one other tribe and from their own kingdom. And they returned home. The kingdom is now divided once again, like it was when David was first king. And crazy enough, it would never get back together. At that moment, a divide happened that never, ever, ever again was the kingdom brought back to be united. It was the second time they divided. It was the last time. It was over for good. But Rehoboam, who's the new king, he refused to believe that. He refused to accept this news. He already said, I'm going to rule stronger than my dad. So he refused to believe that they, were, they meant it. So he decides he's going to keep enforcing his kingdom. He's still up there in Shechem. And it says in verse number 18 that King Rehoboam sent Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, to restore order. But the people of Israel stoned him to death. That escalated quickly. They stoned him to death. I mean, next thing you know, he sends this guy out to restore order. He's dead in the street. When this news reached King Rehoboam, he quickly jumped into his chariot and fled to Jerusalem. He got out of Dodge, or out of Shechem, and he headed back south to Jerusalem where he knew he was safe because obviously his life was in danger up there. The people were very angry. 
very upset and rioting. He was gone. What we haven't mentioned in the middle of the story so far is who their new leader was going to be. Remember the name Jeroboam? When Jeroboam had ran from the, Solomon's reign after he was told he would be the leader of the part of the kingdom one day, he came back for coronation day. He was with the people asking Rehoboam to lighten their taxes. Jeroboam was trying to play nice and say, look, we'll follow you, just lighten the load. When Rehoboam turned him down and this whole revolt happened, the people turned to Jeroboam and just like the prophet had told him, Jeroboam became the brand new king of the northern tribes. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was now led by Jeroboam, just like the prophet had told him. But what else did the prophet tell him? The prophet also told him that when this happens, if you will follow God, God will bless you and your descendants after you and make you a great kingdom. And Jeroboam should have listened to that because now he's the king of the divided kingdom. But Jeroboam did not listen because Jeroboam became more concerned about his political power and losing his political power than he was concerned about his spiritual welfare of himself and his country. And Jeroboam, here, let me tell you what he was worried about, and you'll kind of understand. He knew that the nation would go every year, at least once a year, sometimes more depending on the festival or where they lived. But at least once a year, the entire nation would go down, different people would go down to the city of Jerusalem, down south in Judah. They would go to Jerusalem where the temple was built that their, that their tax dollars had paid for, that their sons had worked for. They would go to Jerusalem every year, at least once a year, and bring sacrifices. And Jeroboam is, Jeroboam is thinking, we've broken off, and I'm the new king of the break-off, but if the people next year and the year after that and the year after that go back and they get over their anger, their anger settles down and they go back to Jerusalem and they see the temple that they built and they remember the beautiful city and they see the people that they broke off from, not as people that they're divided from anymore, but people that they get to see again and realize that we're all the same. We're all just trying to figure it out. And, and they get reunited with those people and get sentimental again. They might want to join back with Rehoboam and I might lose my kingdom and my power. So in a moment of trying to self-preserve, he made a strategic decision to lead the people away from their faith at this opportune time. Because they were politically riled up. And they were influenceable. And Jeroboam says, I'm going to be a king that's going to appeal to their anger for my own political gain at this time. So verse 28 says, So on the advice of his counselors, King Jeroboam made two gold calves. He said to the people, It's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Going back down south to Judah, too far. The people are like, yeah, it's too far. You know, they're just angry, all angry. He's stirring them up. He's their, he's their man. It's too much trouble. He says, look, Israel, look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He placed these calf idols in the cities of Bethel and Dan at either end of his kingdom. He put them in spots in his kingdom where everyone there could easily get to these two instead of going down to Jerusalem. He says, let's worship these instead. Verse 30, but this became a great sin, for the people worshipped the idols, traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one that's there. Now here's what's interesting to me. All of a sudden, they made a major faith pivot. 
And I don't think it's sudden. I think we, sometimes things become obvious on the outside suddenly, but it was going on on the inside for a while. Because apparently, along the way, the faith became less important than their political aspirations. Or maybe even they married the two together. I don't know. But at this point, they're like, we don't care to go down to, to, to the temple and follow Yahweh our God. No way. We're going to stay here and we're going to worship something else because we are hacked off about how the kingdom is being run. And we're not only going to succeed and break off, but we're going to also we're going to let this become bigger than our faith. And it was tragic. Tragic, yes. Tragic because Rehoboam, the young king, was dumb. Made a bad decision as a young. We've all made bad decisions as young leaders too, I'm sure. He made a bad decision. Listen to the wrong people in his ear. Ignore the advice of the older people. Listen to his buddies. It was bad. But, and, and, and then the break off, the kingdom being divided, that was bad. But what was really tragic is that they spiritually, with their anger, got caught up. And their faith suffered. And it would put the northern kingdom on a downward trajectory, spiritually and nationally, and they never recovered. If you follow the history from that point forward without turning there today in Scripture, if you read the story, they never recovered. The kingdom, they never had a, a, a good spiritual leadership again. They, um, they ended up in a spot down the road where when uh, captivity came, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity way before the southern kingdom was. The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom eventually went into captivity, but they came back 70 years later. The northern kingdom never came back. They never came back fully. It was a hot mess forever. It, they never recovered, folks, from those decisions. And whenever I read that story and I realize they had a bad circumstance handed to them, but what they did in the face of their bad circumstances was devastating. And it reminds me of something that I heard over and over and over again growing up. Something that my dad said to me so many times when I was growing up. He, my dad was my dad and a, my pastor for a number of years. And he did not invent this statement, but he repeated it and, and it stuck with me. And, and that is this. It's not your circumstances that destroy you. It's your reaction to them. And this is so true in life over and over and over again that circumstances can happen and they can be hard and they can feel unbearable and they can feel overwhelming. But it's not our circumstances that destroy us. It's our reaction to them. That's the part that we control. And most of the time, we let bad circumstances be the catalyst for bad reactions. And then when we, our bad reactions make a bigger mess, we blame the circumstances. Because the circumstances is why I did what I did. It's the circumstances' fault. But the circumstances might make life hard, but our circumstances won't destroy us. But our reaction can. In this particular story, that's what happened to this nation. And by the way, this story that I just told you, this is not a political sermon, but we could, I'm not doing this, we could take that whole sermon and make it about America and our politics today. And our, We could talk about, but if you're smart, you could connect the dots, I'm sure, to some principles that would apply to our nation. That's not my point today. I will say just this one thing. It's always dangerous when people on either side of the, of the political aisle let their anger drive their politics because your faith always suffers when people can appeal. And when we put bad leader, poor, and poor leaders of poor character and look to them because, because they stir our anger on any side of the aisle, it's a bad deal. And I think that that's a whole lesson that Christians ought to listen to today in our faith and our politics. But that's another story. Not the point of the sermon. 
But like the nation of Israel, who, who Rehoboam gave them a very bad circumstance, and they reacted in a way that utterly destroyed them. And they can say, oh, it's Rehoboam's fault. Yeah, it was, you could have gotten through. You got through Solomon. God could have changed something. But you know what? You didn't have to walk away from your faith. But reactions, boy, they can sure devastate us, can't they? So we're discussing rules for the road. We're discussing this on a personal level. And as, as we see in that story, and as we see whenever you, I mentioned being under the influence earlier. Remember driving under the influence? Never a good idea to drive while impaired. But not just by alcohol or drugs or substances. It's never a good idea to drive when, when under the influence of other things like grief, tragic loss, heartache, heartbreak, anger, driving while impaired. Because here's the thing. No one... No one steers safely when they aren't thinking clearly. You know this, and I know this. No one steers safely when they aren't thinking clearly. Right? This is important. This is important to remember. Michelle and I were up here last week, if you were with us, and we talked about our marriage a little bit on stage. We mentioned that our first year of marriage was the hardest year for us because it was the, it was the, um, it was the most challenging adjustments uh, for us to, to go through. Um, can I tell you something about that? Um, we made a decision when we, that first year, we get, we get upset sometimes with each other. Maybe it trickled past the first year a few times, I don't know. But anyhow, uh, we, got, we got upset. And when we were upset, we made a deal <laughs> that, that we might leave each other's presence, but that we made a promise that neither one would hop in the car and take off angry. Because we both knew that we're not going to drive, we're not very responsible, safe, out tearing off in the car, driving off angry and going somewhere. And the person who's left at home in that moment is worried about the mental state and well-being of their, of their spouse who's driving somewhere upset. And maybe that's your goal. You're like, good, I'm trying to, I hope they're at home freaking out and it's terrifying them. That's terrible. That's your attitude. That's manipulative. That's not a, that's, that's a horrible attitude to have to try to hurt someone. It's like people always go nuclear and, 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 and very narcissistic in how they try to treat their spouse when they're upset to inflict pain. That's never a, we decided we weren't going to do that. If we're upset, and we were sometimes, we're not going to get behind the wheel and take off and leave the other person terrified of where we are and what we're doing and how we're doing. Because we knew that being behind the wheel when you're emotionally upset is no place to be. Because no one, listen, no one steers clearly, certainly steers safely when they aren't thinking clearly. When bad things happen, we are tempted to react while under the influence of grief heartbreak, anger, loss, or whatever it may be. But something, my, again, something I heard my dad say over and over again was not original to him, but I heard it over and over again as I grew up, and it's such good advice, is this. Don't make decisions when your decision maker is broken, or at least when it's impaired. Just don't do it. We make sometimes, we make decisions. We put our hands on the steering wheel of life. The steering wheel of life. And we make decisions to do things when we're not in the right frame of mind to do it because we're under the influence. Our decision maker is not working properly. We gotta be better. So I wanna give you three practical steps and we'll go home. Three practical steps to take when bad things impact your life. Very simple, three words and then I'll explain them. The first one is this, diagnose. Diagnose. What do I mean by diagnose? This, is, this means understand yourself. So in, in the world today, People have long figured out for decades and decades now, the secret to success in life, in business, in life in general, is not your intelligence 
as much as your emotional intelligence. EQ is way more important in, than IQ to make it in life. Do you know what the very first and most important ingredient in emotional intelligence is? Self-awareness. Self-awareness. It's the first thing. It's being aware of, of who I am. I can't be aware of other situations or understand people if I'm not self-aware. And the problem with self-awareness and the, the problem with emotional intelligence is everyone thinks, oh, I got it. I'm self-aware. I know. But we lie to ourselves. You know, you're like, I, don't th- I think you're, you're depressed. Oh, I know I'm a little bit down, but I got this. Well, you're kind, of, you're, you're kind of admitting it, but you're not understanding the depth of it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not out of control anger. I'm just upset. You, you're not being honest. You don't see who, what's really going on. I don't, we, we, we lie to ourselves. The, the secret sauce to life is understanding what's making me tick and what's driving me and where am I really at. Diagnose. And it's hard to do even when you're healthy because our hearts lie to us. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. <laughs> Is, is desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Our hearts lie to us since we're young, since we're teenagers telling our parents, I can be in the bedroom with my girlfriend or boyfriend with the door closed and no one home and we won't do anything bad. We are, I can control this. Oh, okay. All right. And we're adults. We're like, I can make this decision while I'm angry. I know I'm upset, but I'm still, on, I'm in control. I'm just we always, we lie to ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We convince ourselves that we know that what we feel like doing right now is the right thing because our heart deceives us. So diagnose, be, to be self-aware is such a big, big deal. And to recognize, am I really the right person to be acting or am I impaired? Is my decision maker broken? Because if you're not careful, you deci- your circumstances won't destroy you, but your reaction will. Who will you trust when you can't trust yourself? It's a question to ask yourself, but you have to be honest with yourself first. Can I really trust my own judgment right now or am I under the influence? Now, let me just tell you, if you by the way, and I should, I should say this about the whole six weeks we've been in. This entire sermon series, Rules for the Road, we kind of moved it up. It was going to be planned for next year. We, we just let, you know, our, we moved it up. We felt led to move it up. This whole series... Is, is just a pastor's heart. I've been doing this for over 23 years now. This November, it'll be 24 years of a pastor of this church. And for years before that, I've been in the people you know, business for a long time. And I want to tell you something about it. Um, this whole series, is the advice we've been giving you, the rules for the road, it comes from the job that I, that I do. And something I've seen through the years of, of what I'm talking about right now is people will go through a bad season of life. And afterwards, sometimes later, they will look back later and recognize their unhealthiness at the time that they couldn't understand at the moment. They thought, I got this. I'm pretty, I'm, not, I'm struggling, but I'm okay. But they'll look back later and recognize their unhealthiness afterwards, but they couldn't see it when they were in the middle of it. And, and it's hard to tell somebody. I, I can't, I mean, I could be in my role, but I can't tell someone. They could, you get mad at you. I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm doing this right. I know what I'm doing. But, but when you get out of it someday, they're back and say, man, that was not really healthy. But no one could tell you that when you're in the middle of it. Because, because we deceive ourselves. It's so easy to do. When, when the depression is heavy. I, I can tell you, and I can tell you from my own personal life, I, the hardest thing I ever went through, which we will never talk about because it's too personal, hardest thing I ever went through in my life, a number of years back, 
what was devastating. And I, and I was going through a hard season because of it. It was very personal, very close to home. And I was going through a hard time, and, and Michelle and I both were. And I remember coming through a season and looking back and saying, boy, I was really, I was under a cloud. I was really struggling with that thing. I was really hurt and, de- and depressed through that. But I'm better now. I don't see it. I see it now, but I'm better now. And then a, a while later, I look back and say, oh, wow, I thought it was better then, but I was still under a cloud. Maybe it wasn't as intense of a cloud, I was still struggling. It took me four years, folks, four years, before I think I fully emerged from the fog of a devastating heartache. And it got better in degrees. But you always look back and say, yep, I can see it now. But in the middle of it, it's hard to diagnose. But it's important that we do. So diagnose, number two, I want to say, not only diagnose, but delay. Delay. In other words, delay means this. It means don't, you just need to wait sometimes. We're too, we're too far back. We jumped way ahead. Oh, no. You got my, you got my end of my notes here. Okay, well, forget what you saw. Camera here. Um, delay. Delay means this. Delay means that what I'm going to do is that when I'm tempted to do something quickly, because I'm, I'm going through some frustrations, i got to act on this. I'm just going to wait. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. It takes patience. I'm going to give you a verse from Psalms 27. By the way, this verse was written by King Rehoboam's granddaddy, King David. Wrote the, King David, when he was young, was going through a difficult time. And David said this in Psalms 27, 13. He says, yet I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. In other words, he said, he said, I'm not there yet. It's bad right now. It's not good yet. But, he said, but it will get, it will get better. I'm, I'm in a bad spot now, but I'm confident that this won't last. These circumstances that are horrible that I'm living through won't always be this bad. It's going to get better one day. So I'm confident. Here's what he said. In the meantime, verse 14, in the meantime, he said, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. He's saying, I've got to learn to wait when I want to act. I've got to learn to be patient when I want to act because I've got to let the Lord guide me because I am going through it. Delay. Here's the bottom line. Difficult conditions require greater reaction time when you're on the road. Can I, again, this is, this is a pastor's heart talking here. Been at this for a while, okay? Whenever someone goes through a major loss, and a loss can be a lot of things. It could be your spouse leaves you, or they die, or your child dies, or they break your heart in some way, or a parent passes away, or I'm using death or, or separation, and, but it could be a thousand other things. Something significant that just pow impacts you. I always tell people, you need a one-year rule. One-year rule before you make any major decisions, before you decide to just up and move, quit that job and walk away, change your whole life, start dating again, and rebound into something else. No one ever wants to hear that, but I always give a one-year. You say, Arlen, why do you always say the one-year rule? You know why? Because no one wants to hear me say a two-year rule. (laughs) Otherwise, I would. Because we want to just act right now. Because I have to, and my life's passing by. I can't let my life waste away, not pass by. But more bad things happen when we're under the influence of loss and grief. 
And at the time, no one can tell you that. No one. I mean, I can say it from on stage, but I can't say it to you, anyone face-to-face when they're going through it. Because you get defensive and mad. Some people get mad when you're preaching this. So you got to go, hey. You know, because we, are, we think we, we got this. We've diagnosed that we're capable of making big shifts in our life when we're in a time of grief. So a couple days ago on the phone, I talked with a friend of mine named Rollin Ring. He's 88 years old. Rollin was one of the first deacons, the two deacons we had when I first became pastor of Lighthouse Church back when we were in our old building. He was in his mid-60s at the time. He's 88 years old now. And um, he's sharp as ever. But we were just reminiscing together for a while. And, and when I first came here as a, as a 25-year-old pastor, he was grieving the loss of his wife. His wife had been taken into surgery. So it would have been a routine surgery. Uh, they opened her up to do it. I mean, I say routine. It was significant. But I'm saying they, they was supposed to be fine. And it was a, it's a long story. She died at the operating table. Shocked everybody. Was, I think it was 43 years of marriage, 43 years of marriage. And he's sitting waiting for her to recover. They come out and said she died. Just shocked, rocked his world. And for the next while, he just grieved. He went to church still because he wanted to keep going with his faith. But he would sit during church and would just cry because he couldn't sing. During the songs, everyone would sing. He, would just, he was a singer. He was in the choir before. He would just sit there and cry. Um, he would go to the parking lot after church and want to talk to his wife about who they saw that day and about the service, and she was, it was empty, and he would just sit in the parking lot until everyone else was gone, and he would just cry. He was under a huge cloud of grief. But someone had given him a counsel to try to wait two years before making major decisions. And he took it to an extreme. Like, he didn't change a thing in his house for two years. He left, he left clothes in the closet. I'm not saying that was the right move, but maybe it was. I don't, I'm not, he left nothing. He didn't change house decorations. He said for two years, he just carried on, and lived under an intense cloud of grief. At the end of two years, and it wasn't exactly two years, but it was about that time, he said, it's time to move on. He sold the house, moved to a new place, and got his life going. And he has had a great, a great couple decades plus now since that time. But he's, he, he moved on. But I, I can tell you, and, he, and I, he's the first one I learned this principle from, and I've seen it over and over again. I can tell you the number of people I've seen who've done the opposite. You know, you know someone, their spouse dies, they immediately sell their house and move in with one of their children because they can't bear. And then within, a, within six months of living with their child, it's a disaster. And they want to go to their house they miss, but it's gone. They can't get it back and they don't know where to go. But they made the decision under the influence of grief. And I'm not saying it never works out. Here's what I'm saying. Here's the rule, a good rule to live by. There's always, everyone thinks we're the exception or we find an exception to make us the exception. The good rule is this. Give yourself a year. Because two sounds like a lot. So give yourself at least one year to say, I will make no major decision. I'm going to upheaval my life, change careers, go crazy. When I'm under the influence of grief and loss and heartache, I'm going to be hurt, depressed, angry, whatever it may be. I'm, I'm staying put. I'm going to diagnose and I'm going to delay my decisions. And number three, I'm going to defer. I'm going to defer. Diagnose, delay, and defer. What does defer mean? It means to get some outside help. Sometimes you can't delay your decision. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes when something happens like that, you're forced to make a move. If at all possible, wait at least a year. But if you have to make a decision when you're under the influence, then get some outside help with that. Don't do it on your own because you're not in the right frame of mind. That's when you got to lean on other people. And not to say, what do you think? I I trust you. Well, here's what you should do. Well, I don't want to do that, and you can't control me. 
you're correct. No one can control anybody. You're free, you're free to make any decisions you want, even if they're bad decisions. But if you're going through the influence of grief, don't double down and blow off. Don't do what Rehoboam did and blow off good advice and do what you want to do. If you're under the influence of someone who you trust says, hey, don't do this right now or do this, trust them. Let counsel help you. In fact, I love this verse in Proverbs 15, 21. It says, foolishness brings joy to those with no sense. A sensible person stays on the right path. That verse sounds snarky if we read it that way. People with no sense. But don't read it that way. That's not what it's trying to say. It's saying sometimes we're not in our right senses. Sometimes things happen to us and we're not in our right frame of mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? And when we're not in our right senses, our right frame of mind, foolish things look like good ideas. We're like, you know what make me feel better? To do this. That'll make me happy. That'll bring me joy. That will improve my circumstance. People will do foolish things when we're not in our senses, we're not in our right mind because we're under the influence. But a sensible person, a person who's not inhibited that way, they know to stay on the right path. So be careful when you're under the influence. And then the next verse, verse 22 says this, plans go wrong for lack of advice, but many advisors bring success. One of the best things you'll ever do is find people that you trust and say, listen, when I'm going through it, I'm gonna turn and let you be my guide. Not because I can't, I'm, I'm autonomous, I can do my own thing, but I don't trust myself right now. If I can put it in terms of our sermon series, designate a driver when you're under the influence, right? We know that's a good idea. Designate a driver. When your life is going through grief and depression and anger and frustration, designate a driver. Say, listen, I need you to do this for a little bit here. Help me, help me get through this season, okay? I, I, can't, I can't keep moving, but I can't, I can't, I can't I can't delay this decision, so I need to defer. Help me out. Now, folks, here's what I'm saying. It's not your circumstances that will destroy you, but it could be your reaction to them that does. So don't make decisions when your decision maker is broken. No one steers safely when they're not thinking clearly. To diagnose, delay, if you have to do something, defer, designate, get help. In the back on your way out, you can get all the cards from all six weeks plus the cover card. This week's card, we have a Bible verse for you and a rule. The Bible verse is the one we gave you earlier in Psalms 27 14. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be of good courage. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. And today, the rule for the road for today is simply this know when to take your hands off the wheel. And that's easy to preach, and it's hard to do. Someone walked out of service today, an older gentleman said to me, easy to say, hard to do, right? I said, absolutely. It's hard. After church today, one of the families in our church, a younger family, walked out and said, pray for our family right now. My cousin, their two-year-old, just died yesterday, choked to death. Two-year-old eating a chicken McNugget and choked on the nugget and died. And our family's shook up right now. And um, wow, you know, that's just an instant valley. That's just an instant wrecking of life. The person who told me how he's easier, easy to say, hard to do, knew all too well, lost a, lost a child of his own years ago, tragically. I, I, I know when I preach this today that there are some of us right now, we need this. 
whether we want, whether we, whether we want, we're, so, we're like, I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. I got to move on with my life. I, but, but just, are you under the influence? I, I beg you. My, the years have shown us this. This is the right path. This is the path forward. This is the path to less regret. Because those circumstances won't be, you might blame the circumstances in the end for other problems, but it's oftentimes the reactions to those circumstances that cause the real problems. Just take it easy. Know when to take your hands off the wheel. Diagnose, delay, defer. This will pass. Maybe no one, maybe you don't need this today. The best people in this room to be helped by today's sermon are the ones who don't need it yet, but will remember it when it happens. Because in life it will come our way. And I hope that if that's you today, God will speak to your heart.